This is Dan Wharton Uncancelled. Let's go. We all know the streets are becoming more lawless and the threat of crime darkening our own lives feels more real than ever before. Most of us have also realised that given the dire circumstances, the increasingly woke police have got their priorities oh so wrong. I posted something that he posted. You come to arrest me, you don't arrest him. Why is it come to arrest Look, I actually have huge respect for the police on the whole. Many of my family members have worked for them and I'm well aware of the pressures they are under. But I also know what it's like to be a crime victim in modern Britain. Uh, three times now, I've been mugged in Sadiq Khan's lawless London. Look, I'm a big bloke, I wasn't under the threat of violence, the hood rats just wanted my phone. But I felt a pure rage running through me, along with a feeling of violation and a helplessness, to be honest. And that helplessness largely comes from the cruel reality that in modern Britain, the chances of you getting your crime solved are close to non-existent. And this has been backed up today by a damning new report from Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary that concludes burglary victims are being let down by the police with officers missing opportunities to catch suspects from the moment crimes are reported. Figures from the Home Office reveal that just 3.7% of burglaries, 4.2% of thefts and 6.6% of robberies result in a charge. So I fully support the Chief Inspector of Constabulary, Andy Cook, who made headlines today by saying these are not minor crimes and they strike at the heart of how safe people feel in their own homes and communities. Uh, they do need to focus on issues that matter to the community and burglary, robbery and theft from vehicles very much is an issue that matters to communities. It strikes at the heart of communities and makes people feel unsafe in their own homes and in their own neighbourhoods. So these are the issues that we need to focus on. Policing is complex, the demand on policing is complex, I accept that. But we also need to remember the people who have been um, becoming victims of crime in relation to the more traditional issues as well that people do want to see policing take action on. 
Cook has now ordered a back-to-basics approach, including visiting the victims of burglary in person and correct crime scene management practice. I fully endorse that. Stop investigating tweets by Lawrence Fox and start investigating CCTV of muggings. Stop dancing with the Extinction Rebellion eco-terrorists and start infiltrating the dangerous environmental organisations planning waves of crime from October. Stop spending money on painting rainbows over cop cars and start spending it on solving burglaries instead. To respond now, my superstar panel, Star Daily Mail columnist Sarah Vine, the political commentator Dominique Samuels and the author and broadcaster Amy Nicall. Sarah Vine, it's just so despicable, isn't it, that the tiny percentage yeah. of those types of crimes yeah. now solved? I mean, I think the police are in a real state, actually. Um, that, you know, they seem to spend all their time worrying about thought crime and not worrying about mm. actual crime. Yep. And it's easier to solve, I guess. They tied themselves in so many knots, but it's always low-hanging fruit with them. Yeah. It's the easier stuff that's going to get the most traction and make them, you know, they're, they're, they're so terribly worried about their image. And the thing is, they do have a massive image problem. If you look at Sarah Everard, if you look at the policeman whose names I forget, who took pictures of those two poor girls mm. who were killed, I mean, there are some really bad eggs rattling around in that basket. I'm not sure that's the right metaphor, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but and so so they're they're always trying to run they're running to try and catch up with themselves, but they're not actually doing the job that they're asked to do. I mean the other problem of course they have is that actually <laughs> if they do start arresting people, the criminal court system is so backed up and so constipated and the judicial system in this country is so paralyzed and our prisons are all full. So, you know, there is a broader question here about you know, general how we manage our criminal problem in this country because we don't have enough space in jails and we don't have enough time in court to process people. But I do think that this idea that, you know, if you get your mobile phone stolen, it's not considered really to be a crime by the police because it's a disposable object, your insurance will pay for it, they don't want mm. to... Yeah, you know, they, they can't be bothered, it's not for them, no. it's not a thing. But, but things like antisocial behaviour and knife crime, which are really terrible... I mean, they're also very bad on that. They don't, they don't seem to be able to get a grip on that. And they seem to have completely lost the war against drugs. I mean, completely. Yeah. As far as I, I mean, know. I mean, Dominique, 3.7% of burglaries. I mean, let's just think for a moment. That means your home is invaded by complete strangers and there is a 96% chance that the criminals are going to get off. And obviously that's why... This industry is just growing. I mean, yes, there is a crisis in policing at the moment, but when you actually look into some of the details of this, it's sort of not surprising. I mean, um, one statistic says that inexperienced officers are going to make up 40% of the UK police force by next year. Part of that is to do with the fact that the Conservative Party have had to actually regain some of the 20,000 officers that they got rid of, mm. and much of those officers are inexperienced. But on the other hand, you've got a lot of these officers actually coming fresh out of university. They don't really know the realities of policing. They're scared to communicate with the public. <laughs> One report even said that they had their parents calling in, demanding that they have their birthdays off. Seriously. Mm. We have a crisis. Yeah, this is the woke world, isn't it? And, and, and the problem is, as Sarah says, because they have this image problem, that's why sometimes they think the solution is going Being woke. Well, but we don't want social workers 
in uniforms. No. We don't want thought police in uniforms. We want police officers that are actually interested mm. in solving crime. And I think a lot of it is to do with the bureaucracy that, I'm sorry, the Conservative government has allowed to accumulate on their watch. It's on their watch that they've turned into thought police and social workers. How about have a look at the College of Policing and the undue influence that they seem to be having on policing, because that's where a lot of the woke nonsense is actually coming from. However, the woke nonsense does um, have a position as well, because you need to um, ensure that you've got faith in the police, that you've got trust in the police. That's really important in communities. Well, I'll have faith so in, police why... and trust in the police if my home is burgled and they actually bother to come to my address. Instead so, of investigating so, tweets. But, OK, I want them to investigate tweets and also to come around your house. And unfortunately, there aren't the numbers available at the moment. There's not enough police and there's not enough funding. Honestly, um, Amy, if because... they had to investigate tweets, I mean... I get multiple death threats a week. I, I mean, would seriously. love it if the police had enough time and energy but to go don't. to each of those. But but they should, and that's why it's a, they it's shouldn't. A, it's an issue of prioritisation and retention. They shouldn't be prioritising tweets. Of course they shouldn't. You know, and, but at the moment they're prioritising nine 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 calls over one oh one calls. All the things you've talked about, burglary, theft, the smaller crimes, they would be considered one oh one calls. But because they're so stretched, there aren't enough police on the ground, and there isn't enough money. So what are they calling for tweets and hate crime? Why, that's not a priority. Each, each force obviously has different um, abilities and if you look at a really well-funded, um, well-running police force, then they've probably got the time and the um, finances to be able to look into something like a tweet. Do you even like believe in police, though, Amy? Because you don't believe in prison, do you? I don't believe in harsh law and order. We've got to throw everyone in prison and that will sort everything out. I don't think that at all. And I think probably the rising crime comes from a loss of community. And if you had more sense of community, um, such things as like youth clubs, um, you know, social services. That would, yes, that... youth clubs is going to solve it all. I think youth clubs... It's always, has... <laughs> it's always the left's answer. We'll put some youth but that's clubs a, up. But that's a really naive... That's a really naive um, way to look at it because, in fact, um, giving people um, purpose and having uh, stuff to do within their community and a sense of respect and value for their community, of course, that starts at the roots. But I think, the, I think of... the government has sort of got it wrong on two fronts. On the one hand, you've gotten rid of the, obviously, the short start centres, the youth clubs, etc., etc. But then, on the other hand, in the actual prisons, you don't have enough prison staff to actually no. run the prisons, no. so the prisoners are literally having parties in there, yeah. taking pics, taking drugs, cooking steak. Yeah. Yeah. It's a party. No, the, no wonder the, the a lot of them actually want to come back there. And as Sarah says, the problem is <laughs> because of the pandemic, yeah. the justice system yeah. is, is so uh, bogged down as well. But the thing is, Sarah, this is Britain. We cannot get to the point mm. where we accept that a burglary, mm. an invasion of one's home, mm. is no longer a priority crime. It is a priority crime, and it should be. And it should be, and it should, and it, and it should be. Of course, it should be attended. But like I said, they tend to focus on the low-hanging fruit, mm. so they will. Seize That's it. not true. They focus on the nine-nine-nine emergencies. Well, I and... don't know. I mean. Well, I'm sorry, we sh saw the police showing up to, to, to the house of an army veteran who'd retweeted a post by yeah. Lawrence Fox. And there were about I think, I think six so much, police officers. So so that whole also, story was so no, blown out. So much of what they do is to do with box ticking and filling in forms. I mean, the amount of, the amount mm. of bureaucracy. stupid yeah. paperwork that policemen have to do. Most exactly, and then they want to leave as a yeah, result. And most policemen yeah. are really good people and it's a really exactly. difficult job. And they deserve to be properly paid and they deserve to not have to do all this nonsense filling in of forms and, I think, and stuff. I they agree. deserve to be properly supported. And properly trained. And they're not. And properly they? trained. Maybe 
send them send the new ones that you've got that are from uni and don't know what they're doing. Maybe send them to a boot camp, some groups of them, and actually show I'll them quickly charge, what to do. There's yeah. a brilliant, brilliant channel. <laughs> There's a brilliant channel four series on at the moment about young cops in Brighton, and it follows the lives of three or four really young coppers, and it's really worth your your listeners checking it out because it really is an eye opener. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what it's called. I'll Night Coppers. I'll look it Night, up. I'll look it up. That's, Night no, Coppers. Is it Night Coppers? I'm That's told. it. Have you watched it? No, I haven't. Have you got a thing in your ear telling yes. you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear it. One last thing that I would say, though, just to reiterate. I think we should stop focusing on uni grads uh, for police officers as well. I think that yeah, let's get people, people that, that, yeah, that have real life experience yeah. because uni I mean, grads, they're it's a perfect not going to like it, but it's a part of the woke job. world. It's a perfect job for somebody, for a, for a young man or a young woman who's slightly gone off the rails who really understands yeah. a bit, you know, totally. how of things work. I think work. the fact yeah. is that austerity completely wiped out a massive amount of police officers and we've never well, really come did. back from yeah. that. And every time we try to replace the officers that were yeah. sacked, they are not, they don't have the experience. So they're not, they've got, they've got, there's a massive yeah. shortage well, of senior officers. Yeah, that was a terrible decision that's... to get rid of those yeah. police yeah, officers, yeah. I agree. And it all... And Whittakam and Sir John Redway, uh, Redwood are still to come this hour, but first it's time for The Clash. The media and eco-doom mongers are up in arms about the looming drought expected to be declared across parts of Britain tomorrow. But often buried is the fact that droughts are relatively common weather events that have been occurring for decades. According to the Environment Agency, severe droughts were recorded as far back as the 1930s and 20s and even the 1880s. Our last was declared pretty much on schedule in 2018. We survived that and we will do again. Thankfully, not everyone has bought into this eco-friendly version of Project Fear. Former Brexit Minister and Liz Truss backer Lord Frost has bravely spoken out against the borderline hysterical sense of emergency attached to climate concerns. In a new essay for the policy exchange think tank urging the UK to ditch renewable energy, Frost said, The current evidence does not support the assertion that we are in a climate emergency. Rather, the effects of climate change are a problem, one of the many we face, and should be tackled in that pragmatic way rather than by asking us to upend the whole way our societies work. Here, here. Now, let me be clear. Neither Frost nor I deny that climate change is real, but the highly respected pair is right to say that we should not be hectoring people to the point it, quote, seems normal to be lectured about the moral aspects of virtually every choice in our everyday lives. So, what do you think? Is Lord Frost right to say we are not in a climate emergency? Email me down at gbnews.uk, tweet me at gbnews, I'll poll running there too, the results shortly. But to give their take and to help you make up your mind, I'm joined by the economist and energy researcher Laurie Leyburn, spokesperson for Animal Rebellion, Orla Coughlin, and author and social commentator Adrian Hayes. Adrian, you are with Lord Frost on this, I believe. Good evening, Dan, and good evening, everybody. Uh, yes, I am. And I'll say right from the start that more than perhaps anybody else in this country or many in the world, I've actually witnessed climate change firsthand walking to the North Pole where the ice was one metre thick a few years ago, used to be five metres thick, crossing the length of Greenland where we work with Denmark's senior ice scientists. And so I've witnessed it. It's happening. Global warming's happening. Um, Man-made or natural causes, I think the jury's out. I think, personally, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, is it natural, the presence of droughts and everything part of the climate change? Possibly. The modelling's where I'm a little bit suspicious about, because as we've seen in other factors, modelling can be well out. But not, putting that all aside, 
it's happening. And we've got, like we insure our house, we put alarms, we put locks, we put security. I do believe to start with, we have to do something about climate change. So I'm with Orla and Laurie to start with on that. Orla, the issue is not so much that we have to do something, it's about the pace, isn't it? And Lord Frost says, hang on a moment, this isn't an emergency. Um, thanks for having me um, on the show, Dan. Um, it absolutely is an emergency. Um, and I'd, I'd like to say, like, I'm, um, my background is not a scientist. Um, I'm a nurse, um, specifically a children's nurse. And um, I'd like to say that I think the general public um, can understand that we are in a crisis. All we have to do is look towards the most recent IPCC report. Um, and for context, the IPCC report is um, 234 scientists, the top scientists of different countries around the world coming together and looking at 14,000 different studies. It's not one study, it's not a couple of studies. Um, and as you said, you, know, you, you think that the, the jury's out on this, um, but this IPCC report has said very clearly that this is a code red for humanity. I, know, David the UN, King, I mean, look, I'm a bit older than you, but in reality, Ola, for my entire life, the UN have been issuing these doomsday warnings. They started in the 70s. Uh, it continued when I was growing up in the 80s about the ozone hole, which is now, by the way, pretty much closed. Is it not a bit, Ola, like the Great Barrier Reef? It's going to be destroyed. And actually, when people dig down and actually look at the evidence. It's in better shape than it has been for 30 years. Well, this is what I'm saying. You know, this is 14,000 scientific studies that have accumulated together. You know, it's not just one study. It's not two studies. It's not one thing. This is 14,000 studies that are saying that it is a code red for humanity, that we need to find solutions urgently. urgently. And Sir David King, who's the ex-chief scientific advisor of the UK, has said last year that we have three to four years to determine the future of humanity. That's this year, two to I know, three and, years. And I've been saying that for the past 30 or 40 years. That's reality. Laurie, uh, you are not with Lord Frost on this. No, and can I just say that, the, to take some of the points that have just been discussed, there is a graph in the latest IPCC report that shows that it is a result of human activity. I mean, the science is now so advanced now that we can actually identify that it is almost exclusively a result mm -hmm. of human activity that we're facing this global temperature rise. That question is now closed, it's done. We are very advanced with the science here. The second thing to say is that the, the IPCC is slightly separate to what you're calling the UN there, right? This is a, a report, a, a, a body that brings together the best available science as we were just hearing, okay? If you look at those reports, they have been very guarded in their language. Some people say, in fact, too guarded in their language. That is separate to what some people in the UN have been saying. But we have now, as we've just been hearing, got to the point where those highly detailed reports that show the very best of the science are saying we are at the point where this it might be proportionate to be thinking about this in the terms that you could apply words like emergency to. And we're seeing that all around us, right? It's not just heat waves and fires, which are now more extreme than they have ever been in many places. It's the threats to the things that are really important in our lives, like food supply, like the ability to work outdoors and other things that are being impacted by this in a way that we have not seen before in the available record of our, of our weather and how the climate has changed. Uh, far fewer people, by the way, are dying now from weather events than ever have. 
I, I, I think one thing that's really dangerous, Laurie, is to say on any issue, by the way, on any issue, and I especially say this after the two years that we've just lived through and all the lies that we've been told about uh, the COVID and, and the vaccine, the science is never closed, OK? You should never just say the science is closed. Science is never closed. And, and it almost feels uh, quite zealot-like for you to say that because surely you want to keep investigating, you want to keep researching. Mm -hmm. That's the point of science. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I strongly agree with that. I don't think there ever will be. I agree. The, the science should you never be described as closed. No, I said a there is one question, which is, is this caused by humans that is largely closed? In the same way that if you went out and you smoked 100 cigarettes a day for your entire life and then you got lung cancer, the science that we have will make a link between that smoking activity and then the illness that you have then got, right? Yeah. So but the there question are is, the, the question is, from from Lord Frost, though, is is actually not questioning that point about whether the climate is changing. It's about whether we're in an emergency, whether ordinary folk should have to give up eating meat, uh, should have to give up flying. Because, Ola, that's what your group wants, right? The Animal Rebellion. Can we just be clear about this? You think that there should be no farming of animals in the UK, no consumption of meat, right? Uh, no foreign travel on planes whatsoever. Yeah, so we're a group um, that are campaigning towards a plant-based future. And our demands are that the government support farmers and the fishing communities in transitioning to a plant-based food system. And in doing that, we're also asking the government that they will rewild all of the freed up land um, that, will be, that will come from this um, plant-based future and that we will have a bigger programme of wildlife restoration and, and ultimately carbon drawdown. Have you seen study today, by the way, all of that I spoke about at the top of the show? Uh, it's a Leeds University study over the past uh, 20 years of 26,000 women showing that they're far more likely to have serious hip breaks later in life if they're on a plant-based diet. Do you have any evidence that, a, that an all-plant-based diet is actually safe for humans? Absolutely. The World Health Organization has said that a plant-based diet is healthy for all stages of life. Oh, well, if and they we say it, if they say it, I certainly don't believe it. Oh, I'm not finished. Sorry. Sorry, I'm not finished. Um, and we also know that a plant-based diet is um, reducing heart attacks, it's reducing stroke, and it's a massive reduction um, to obesity. Okay. So, and, and, breaking, and a heart attack is the leading hits. cause of people. Uh, uh, Adrian Hayes, you've reasons. obviously listened to all of that. What do you want to come back on? Firstly, I don't, Laurie, with respect, the science is never settled, I'd say that. There is a big volume of scientists who don't disagree with this, but they've been cancelled. That's the first thing. Secondly, I think we need to define, redefine the English language. What is an emergency and a crisis, a catastrophe? Yeah. I've seen global warming. Yes, I agree with. Climate change, yes. But climate crisis, climate emergency, climate catastrophe means yes. it's happening imminently. I believe we've got time. But the biggest thing, and this is where I really do stress, I the problem when you... Obsessed. We, we face many risks in the world, from asteroid collision to nuclear war to food resources to population. When you obsess on one single risk, and when you look at one single issue within that risk, carbon dioxide, a life-giving gas, and when you look at one solution, net zero, you're in danger economic impacts, which we know very well about this year, society impacts, but also, this is why I really stress, environmental impacts. I'm personally far less worried about carbon dioxide emissions in the air as I'm with nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, lead pollution, all these other pollutants that are killing five to 10 million people today. 
I'm more worried about the pesticides and chemicals that big food corporations put in our food leaking into our rivers, that sewer water companies, raw sewage putting into our rivers, killing all wildlife, what chemical companies are putting into our lakes, our oceans, our rivers, our seas, our plastics going in the ocean, our resource depletion to pay for all of our data requirements, to pay for our EVs, to pay for our windmill yeah, yeah, blades, yeah. resource depletion, deforestation, farmlands, three billion plastic masks in the ocean, overfishing with mass trawlers, with spotted planes, deep, just decimating all these fish things. These are bigger problems, and none of these were caused by climate change. These are caused by humans. And yet yeah. I don't see Extinction Rebellion protesting on the streets of Jakarta about deforestation. I don't see uh, animal welfare rights lobbyists protesting about all the chemicals in our food and pesticides. I don't see any of these protests taking place. These are the real crises that I believe we need to solve. And this is far more important than climate yeah, change, where we've got many decades to resolve. Lots of great points there, absolutely. And Ola, I guess that's something that I really want to second uh, from Adrian and get you to pick up on. For me, it's the language. I mean, you might be surprised to know, Ola, I'm an environmentalist. I've been an environmentalist uh, since the 80s. I grew up in New Zealand. Uh, but because of the way that I was uh, terrorised, actually, as a child by folk like you who were telling me that I wasn't going to be around in 20 years' time because of the ozone hole. I'm incredibly angry with the rhetoric that you use. And it is wanting to terrify kids. And you use very basic weather events, like at the moment, three days of hot weather, essentially, to say that we're in an emergency. And as Adrian says, Ola, we do have time. We are heading towards net zero, but we have to do it responsibly. Because if we don't, Ola, the economic catastrophe for this country will actually cause far more deaths than climate change. I'd just like to say, yeah, um, that we agree on so much, Adrian um, and Dan as well. Um, all of us here agree on so much that we need to look after nature, yeah. that we need, you know, exactly. these it's massive, about the language. Um, it's about the language. And that's what this debate is about, because Lord Frost says we're not in an emergency. Stop being irresponsible. That's what we're disagreeing on, Orla. Well, we can have all of these wider issues and still be in an emergency. Um, and these issues are so interconnected. And that's why we see that if we transition to a plant-based food system, we can rewild the UK. We can bring back these fires. By the way, Ola, I don't agree with you on that. I'm a great carnivore. That's, that's what the science, I, I love that's what the science meat. in Oxford is it's saying. So I don't care what they're saying. Nothing is going to stop me eating meat for as long as I live. Uh, final word to you, Laurie. The US military which we cannot accuse of being a socialist organisation, describes the climate crisis as a threat multiplier. It makes the greatest threats to our shared security, to our well-being as a nation and to the US and other countries around the world. It makes those countries less secure. It does that because when the temperature gets higher and higher, things start to impact how we grow food. They start to impact how people move around the world. They start to cause all of these additional problems. It saturates everything. The stuff that we've seen recently, right, is extraordinary. We had the Met Office, again, not a, a, a hive of socialists who are plotting certain things, quite mm. actually quite nerdy scientists. <laughs> no, they, they don't, because these guys are the holders of an amazing body of British science that we should be hugely proud I, of. I they want them a, to tell me the weather. I don't want them to terrify me or preach to me. That's not their job. Well, what they did, so what they did the other day is they did a weather forecast of what it could look like in 2050 if we didn't get on top of the climate crisis, right? It was speculative, We right? are getting on top of it. Very, open about it. And then, actually, the kind of weather they forecast happened the other week. 
And that was extraordinary. And that is an example of these kind of the, the multiplier of threats that the climate yes. crisis Indeed, but, but we also had that in 1976 too, and that's not to dismiss that things are changing, but I think we can't use every individual freak weather event to declare an emergency. But fascinating, very respectful debate. Thank you all for having it. That was The Economist and Energy Researcher Laurie Leyburn, spokesperson for Animal Rebellion, Orla Coughlin, and author and social commentator Adrian Hayes. Thank you all. So who do you agree with? This is Lord Frost right that we are not in a climate emergency from Kojak. Lord Frost is absolutely spot on. There is no climate emergency and no such thing as man-made climate change, but there is an exponential amount of climate alarmism. From Paul, it amazes me these people can vote. Lord Frost is a man nearing retirement age and can decide on my future, yet I can't. And from Sean, Lord Frost is bang on. The world is not ending. We've had a good summer. <laughs> It's too hot for me, though, I have to be honest. Uh, your verdict now in 84% of you agree with Lord Frost, say we're not in a climate emergency. 16% of you with the animal rebellion. Sir John Redwood and tomorrow's newspaper front page is coming up. And now it's time for political firebrand and former Conservative Minister Anne Widdicombe. Now, I was delighted yesterday to see the Edinburgh Fringe Festival take heed of this advice from Liz Truss. And I think the best thing to do with Nicola Sturgeon is ignore her. I think she's... <laughs> I think... Look, I'm sorry, she's an attention seeker, Seb. That's what she is. Speaking to an audience that was reportedly half empty, Sturgeon threw a host of cheap shots at trust during her sit-down with LBC's Ian Dale at Edinburgh's Pentland Theatre, including a claim that all the leadership frontrunners had asked her at this year's COP26 was how to get into vogue, a feat that woke darling Nicola has somehow managed twice. Oh, look at all of those empty seats. Love to see it. Uh, in my eyes, you know, Sturgeon is better at generating PR than governing, as evidenced by the latest blow to her Indie Ref 2 delusion. Writing to the Supreme Court on behalf of the UK government, Advocate General for Scotland Lord Stewart savagely stated a bill legislating for a referendum on independence would be outside the legislative competence of the Scottish Parliament. The written submission, published on Wednesday, also argued the court has no jurisdiction to declare the legality of Indie Ref 2, and even if it does rule in Sturgeon's favour, Hollywood would be unable to hold a lawful referendum. He also disputed Scotland's claim that any vote would be merely advisory. So has the curtain already fallen on Sturgeon's independence dream? Let me bring in political firebrand, former Tory minister Anne Widdicombe now. Anne, your reaction? Well, first of all, it's not telling us anything that we didn't already know. I mean, we've known for a very long time that unless the government at Westminster actually sanctioned a referendum, it wasn't going to be law. Uh, and Nicola Sturgeon has known that for as long as all the rest of us have known it. Uh, but it doesn't suit her agenda. Uh, so she puts her head in the sand and she, she pretends that it's a referendum um, and that it's going to be legally binding. Well, of course, it isn't. I mean, it's just a complete waste uh, of everybody's time. And she ought to get on with addressing something such as the terrible state of education in Scotland. I mean, look at the latest A-level results. You know, it's declined. Uh, achievement has declined in Scotland under on her watch, under her leadership. It's declined. And it's not the only thing that's declined in Scotland. And that is what she should be focused on, not 
some completely unnecessary referendum when we only had one a few years ago, which everybody said was going to be binding for a generation. Well, I don't know how Nicola Sturgeon defines a generation. <laughs> what did you think of her getting her claws out, Anne, and making that bitchy little jibe at Liz Truss over Vogue magazine? Not very professional. Well, I, but I mean, it was hardly a telling jibe, was it? I mean, it says more about Nicola than it, it does about uh, Liz. Uh, but to me, that's just something trivial, unless she can actually come up with a serious argument uh, for the referendum, the legality thereof. Um, frankly, she should just get on with the job of governing. Never mind the Tory leadership. She should get on with the job of governing. That is her job. And do you think maybe uh, the Sturgeon momentum has slowed somewhat? Because that was uh, very shocking for me to see the Edinburgh Festival. I mean, this is Sturgeon Heartland and hundreds and hundreds of empty seats for her big night. Well, I mean, who wants to listen to Nicola Sturgeon? I mean, you know, that, that's the question you've got to ask. Why would you come out? Why would you pay money? Why would you give up your time to listen to her? Uh, when at the moment she has nothing to say. Um, I, at least that is nothing to say uh, that is remotely sustainable. So uh, I can quite understand that there are loads and loads of empty seats. But your question was, uh, you know, is her momentum dropping off? I think that has been happening for quite some time uh, because um, <clears throat> if you just actually look at the way election results go, I mean, yes, the SNP uh, are still in a dominant position, but it's being weakened almost every time. And I think people are now just getting a bit fed up. And can I just ask for a quick word on the breaking news today regarding the meeting between Boris Johnson and the energy companies? Of course, there is lots of pressure now being put on the Prime Minister to do something. Personally, my feeling is that he has done what's needed to take us up until the, the cap change in October, the price cap change in October. Yeah. And he is a caretaker Prime Minister. We're in the middle of August. Is this just political posturing? Or actually, is there something more that Boris Johnson should be doing right now, in your view? Well, first of all, Boris Johnson is still prime minister and we do still have a government. You know, And even in the middle of a general election, you still have a government. Uh, and when we've got something of this order of magnitude confronting us, uh, it is quite right you know, that, that Boris is carrying on as, as not only as PM, uh, but carrying on with the functions of a prime minister as well. So I don't have a problem with the fact that he's talking to the energy companies. What I have a big problem with, you've heard me say this before, there is one very obvious solution. We're out of the EU, for heaven's sake. We could take VAT off energy bills. We're uh -huh. entitled to do that now, which we weren't entitled to do before. Why is there any delay at all in doing that? But Truss wouldn't even commit to it at our brilliant GB News People's Forum yesterday evening. She still wouldn't commit to it. Uh, I know. And, um, you know, the, the more I listen to her campaigning, the more questions I have. But no, she wouldn't commit to it. Uh, and that is exactly what we should have said. I mean, even before the energy crisis started to bite, we should have said, yippee, we're free. We're in charge of our taxes. No more VAT 
uh, on something as essential as fuel. That's what we should have said. So right. Time now on the latest on the battle to be PM. And Gordon Brown has made another unwelcome political intervention by urging the government to temporarily renationalise energy companies that failed to cut customer bills this weekend. The former PM, filling the void left by Sunland Starmer, took to The Guardian, of course, to demand more government handouts as well as another windfall tax on electricity and gas. In fact, the entire MSM and political establishment are capitalising on the cost of lockdown and energy crises to push for socialist policies like mass renationalisation of industries. But as the political climate veers towards the hard left, it's essential the next government, uh, led most likely by Truss, drowns out the socialist drumbeat and delivers a low-tax, small-state, Thatcher-style revolution. One man who's maybe even tipped. To get back into the cabinet under Truss, helping to lead the revolution back to the right is renowned former minister under Thatcher, Sir John Redwood, and I'm delighted to say he joins me now. So, John, is Truss, uh, who obviously you have endorsed, is she the only candidate who can stop the country's death march back to socialism? Well, well of course, because she, she is the one who has come out top of the, the race so far with the members, if you believe the polling. Uh, she's the one who can now be prime minister, and we need a good conservative prime minister full of common sense conservative values uh, who can support all those who work hard, who, who make this country uh, what it can be, uh, and seize off this dreadful threat. And Gordon Brown, um, I remember him nationalizing RBS. He paid far too much for the shares, and we've lost a fortune on them. And how did that help get us through the crisis which he had helped deliver with the central bank and the other finance ministers of the world at that time. There are obviously, though, these incoming headwinds, John. You know, the analysts today saying potentially energy bills could hit £5,000 next year. Uh, so how should Trust deal with this increasing pressure uh, to commit to further handouts? Well, we first of all got to have realistic numbers. I think some of the numbers now are scaring people needlessly. Um, we then need uh, to make sure we can get more energy out of the ground and more domestically supplied energy available. Because if something is too dear, it, you need more supply, you don't need more taxes to make it even dearer. Um, and then we need to ensure that the, the economy can uh, recover and that it doesn't go into recession in the way that the Bank of England seems to think it's doing, so that people have reasonable incomes from their employment to be able to pay their bills. I mean, John, she is going to have to have, and I, for want of a better phrase, and I'm sorry because you're a very dignified man, but she is going to have to have some big balls, isn't she? She is going to have to be strong. She's going to have to be tough. She's going to have to stare down the establishment, she's going to have to stare down the blob, she's going to have to stare down the, the, the MSM and the BBC. Uh, why do you think she is the person who can do that? What it is about her personal characteristics? Because obviously you know her well. Well, I backed her at the beginning of this campaign uh, because I'd seen what she was doing in government. And I was particularly swayed by the way she handled the huge problems we got in having proper trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. 
and she was handed this very difficult problem by the Prime Minister. Uh, others have not been able to find their way through it. Uh, she listened to sensible advice uh, and she then produced the piece of legislation uh, which has now been through the House of Commons, uh, which would help resolve that issue unilaterally given the refusal of the EU to make sensible proposals or to agree sensible proposals with ourselves. And at the time, she had to battle against the Chancellor and against other senior ministers, and she had to make sure that the government was fully supported in this wish by the Prime Minister. And it just showed to me that she had courage, she had conviction, and she had the ability to get things done. Obviously, we have seen, John, a month of really severe blue-on-blue -blue attacks. How difficult is it going to be for the party to unite after September the 5th? I mean, you've got the Deputy Prime Minister, Dominic Raab, who is supporting the Sunak campaign, saying that Liz Truss's policies are electoral suicide. Well, I hope Dom will rethink that as and when Liz wins, as I trust she will. Um, I think it should be possible for most of us to come together quite quickly because most of us understand this is an election campaign amongst Conservatives, uh, that there are different visions or views of, of how a Conservative government uh, can best behave, but surely we are all agreed uh, that any con Conservative alternative is an awful lot better than what the parties of the left would be offering our country. So I hope that uh, under Liz's leadership, we we'll unite pretty quickly, uh, that there will be a good emergency budget that people can get behind, because it would be a budget, I trust, for, for growth, for expansion, for offering sensible help to people, above all, for promoting more employment so that people can have better incomes from employment. And that should be something which brings the party together. Lots of comparisons to Margaret Thatcher. Uh, what do you make of them? Well, I think today is today and Liz Truss will be Liz Truss uh, and she has many great strengths. <clears throat> I certainly see uh, some of Margaret Thatcher in her, uh, in particular in the way, as I said, she's handled the Northern Ireland Protocol and before that, the way she got a rather reluctant Whitehall to do free trade deals around the world when many of the establishment thought they couldn't be done or were undesirable. Uh, and I'm sure she can go on to achieve great things as Prime Minister. Uh, but she will be her own woman. Uh, and these are different times. We have different battles to fight today than Margaret had to fight in the 1980s. John, lots of speculation, of course, that you might be offered a role in her team. Uh, would you be prepared to serve if asked? Well, I've always said that um, uh, I've got no insight into that. There have been no deals. I've given my support unconditionally to Liz Truss for leader. Uh, and she will choose the team she wants around her as and when she is Prime Minister. And I've also said that if she wants me to do something, uh, and I think it's something I could do, uh, and that it would be mutually sensible, then of course I will do it. Well, it would be great to have you back. Uh, Sir John Redwood, we will keep in touch. Thank you so much. Tomorrow's news site now in our Media Buds.
The first front pages are in. Let's go to the Metro first, proving that sarcasm is the lowest form of wit, splashing on the PM, turning up for cross talks with energy bosses as they mock Boris, taking a back seat. More details on that next. The Daily Star asks, crisis, what crisis, as it reveals 405, quote, tone-deaf MPs claim £420,000 in expenses for energy bills as Britons suffer with their own finances, while the leader of the House of Commons tells us not to fret about huge pay for energy bosses. Drought may last for months, warns the eye, as millions face new water restrictions like hosepipe bans that are likely to last until autumn. Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have both pledged to reduce leakages of billions of litres by water companies if they win the battle to BPM. My superstar panel back with me now. Star Daily Mail columnist Sarah Vine, the political commentator Dominique Samuelson, the author and broadcaster Amy Nicole. Now, early today, as we just saw, Boris met with electricity bosses, urging them to act in the national interest amid a dire new warning that energy bills could exceed £5,000 from next April. It's just a projection. Let's be clear about that. However, nothing concrete was achieved, with Boris recognising that any significant fiscal decisions would be up to his successor, quite rightly. As the cost of living becomes increasingly ominous, those sneaky socialists have been exploiting the crisis to advance their hard-left agenda, with the former Labour Prime Minister Gordon Brown proposing to temporarily renationalise energy firms over the winter. And this is what Trust supporter Ian Duncan Smith had to put up with when he appeared on the left-wing audio waves of LBC. Government has but to you're make in sure government, it's your job, for God's sake. Well, that's what they are doing. They're working out but on the back don't of know. the 15... This Eddie, has been coming the down the pike of, for months. I'm sorry, at the back of the 15 billion that the government has put out already, which is still rolling out... It's you not want good to enough. Make this, if you want to make this a shouting match, we're not going to get anywhere. But as we know, Liz Truss certainly won't back down to the mainstream media. And according to sources close to the leadership candidate and her expected Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng, the pair have ruled out a major windfall tax. And tonight, she hit back at Brown's interventions at the Hustings in Cheltenham. I do not like the Gordon Brown style economics where you take money off people to, in taxes and give it back in benefits. Fundamentally, the problem we face is that prices are too high. And if we keep just the answer to every question is raising tax, we will choke off economic growth and we will send ourselves to penury. Sarah, I find this is such an interesting one, isn't it? Because, look, of course, uh, she wants to stick to her philosophy when she is appealing to the Tory base. Uh, and I salute her for that. I guess the counter-argument is this could be uh, the sort of crisis when it comes to energy that we haven't seen in our life. I think it's I think it's one of those crises that could really get out of control, and uh, you, know, you know it's just bigger than anyone or anything. Mm. Um, I think that I mean they've already said they're going to give four hundred pounds to each household. I think that's a bit silly. I think what they should do is they should have some sort of means test for that. So, that, so it should all be targeted. So I think it should all yeah. be targeted. I think that would be a really good start because the idea that you're going to give, I don't know, Richard Branson £400... Mm. Uh, each house. It, 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 yes, exactly. <laughs> it seems a bit, you know, I think that's... That, you know, you could give one person... But it should be very targeted it, support for people exactly. who genuinely can't afford Pensioners, to people who really, you know, who really genuinely can't afford to do it. I personally... I mean, the profits that Centrica and Shell have been making are quite spectacular... I mean, they're in the billions. 
Um, and I, I'm not sure that you should rule out, rule out a, a windfall tax. Um, you know, I wouldn't be ruling it out at this stage if I were her. I would be keeping my options open on that. Mm. I mean, Dominic, I think the reality is things are probably going to change pretty quickly once Truss and Quateng are in number 10. Exactly. It can't be that they get into office, realise the problem is bigger than they first thought and sit on their hands because they don't want to sort of renege on their philosophy. Mm. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. What's infuriating, though, isn't it, is the fact there's this vacuum at the moment, so it's immediately used by someone like Gordon mm. Brown... I mean, yeah. ..to say re-nationalise. I know, that makes me really uncomfortable that you can just say to big energy companies, right, we're taking you back into mm. public ownership. I think that sets a terrifying precedent mm. where the state can just swallow up any enterprise it so pleases. Completely disagree with that batshit idea, quite did, frankly. He did say However, it was absolute last resort. Yeah, he did say it was absolute last resort. And I agree with Sarah that I don't think a windfall tax should be out of the question. You know, this isn't just profit that they've gotten out of sheer, you know, talent. This is luck. Mm. And let's not forget that the government have been giving taxpayers money mm. to these energy companies to spend on different renewable yeah, vanity projects. Yeah. And at the same time, the reason why um, our energy costs are going up is because we're importing gas, specifically from Norway. For the first time last year, we imported more than we actually um, produced domestically. We're at the mercy of of global markets because we're not becoming self-sufficient. And, and, and Nick Clegg, you know, in that now uh, viral clip, dismissed building new nuclear plants back in 2011. Oh, because they wouldn't be ready until 2021, oh. 2022. Oh, my God, we need them now. Uh, Amy, are you going to do this pile on uh, against the Prime Minister? Lots of folk on the left saying, oh, he's, he's not doing enough. Wouldn't you also be criticising him if he were making decisions when he is in a caretaker role? Um... First of all, I really feel uncomfortable with the way you're trying to politicise fuel poverty. I don't think it's necessary. I think this is one thing we actually will really need to unite on, which would probably push us a bit forward. This. So what, you want At us moment, to unite on renationalising energy companies? Want, Hell no, that is politics. I it is political. I, I didn't even come close Well, you do want the companies renationalised, no, though, no, don't you? No, but I agree with Gordon Brown that something needs to be done and something needs to be done fast. And I think the fact that the, um, the leader of the opposition and the Prime Minister are both on holiday at this time is slightly problematic. Well, no, Boris is back at his desk. Yeah, he's now back, okay, back at his desk, but he's like, oh, I'll leave that for the next... It must be pretty uncomfortable there. for you folk on the left who have all been criticising Boris going on holiday. I know you have been. I've, I've equally and, been criticising Keir Starmer. And now Starmer's on holiday. on holiday. At this time. I think it's really Everyone needs to go on holiday. Yes. Everyone needs to go on holiday, but, you know... Because otherwise your brain explodes. <laughs> you and then you make huge mistakes. But we're at the brink of 50% of pensioners... Uh, sorry, of pensioners spending 50% of their income but, on But we're on not electric. right now. But, Sarah, this is... We're not right now, Dan. But this no, but is, that is a very... In August, because, Sarah, this has annoyed me so much all week, because this is pure politics. The point is, Sunak's plan, mm. even when Boris was staying in power, mm. was to take us through to October. Mm. We don't need to make the decision yet. That's not me denying mm. that this is a potential emergency. I'm not denying mm. that. But these cheap shot lines yeah. about Boris being on holiday, 
or makes no, I mean, so I mean, I, the, the, there's never a good time for a politician to go on holiday. No, yeah, there's never, you know, there's never a good time. And, and, and the thing is, if you want, if you want functioning politicians, you have to let them have a break every now and again. I'm afraid that is the case. But I just think, with this, with this, you know, if they were to target these, the, the, this help that they're giving in a much more intelligent way and not just give it to everybody, yeah. we could, you know, yeah. that, that would be a, a exactly. very good start. But I think my point is, we don't need to make that decision. No, in the we don't. August. But also, trust will you're likely. Too late. Just like no, with everything with not COVID, it's like. Like no, it is. It is. I disagree with you, Lada. For absolutely everything, and this is happening now. It is, and, and it needs to be seen we're not just now. hurtling towards a recession. We're hurtling towards a potential depression, and people are not going to be able to pay their mm. bills come winter. There'll be people that just simply cannot pay. What then? The government has to do something, mm. and I think really it's kind of selfish for this leadership race to be going on well, of course, for so long. I, look, I think it needs to wrap up. Well, that's why <laughs> I said there should never be a leadership race in the first place. But the problem is, as soon as the Conservative Party went down that route, the Conservative MPs, yeah. which, by the way, I stand by, was a huge mistake. Yeah. The membership mm -hmm. think it was a huge mistake. But the problem is, Sarah, once you go down that path, you have to have the race. Because I think a lot of the reasons why the opposition is saying end the race, end the race, is because they know what happened with Theresa May. Mm. When it wasn't put to a vote, mm. when she wasn't properly tested no, they need to be properly on the tested. campaign and trail, you, they, they she really was a failed Prime yeah. Minister. Yeah. And so to truncate the race, I oh. think, would be a disaster for the yeah. Tory party. Absolutely. No, it would be a disaster. But, uh, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, they need to be tested properly and they need to have yeah. the questions asked. And we need to we have to win the vote. Like, we can't have yeah. Sunak no, 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 no. out. No, definitely not. Because then it's like trust hasn't legitimately. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. I don't think we should be in this position. But given no. that we are in this position, this is where it is. But I think on this energy, I mean, a lot of people pay their bills by standing order. Their bills will already be their their stand their monthly standing payments will already be reflecting the projected rises. The other thing that's really unfair about fuel in this country is that people who have to use meters and stuff actually pay more. Mm -hmm. They just pay an awful mm. lot more anyway for their fuel. I have to use a meter. Yeah. For my and do you pay? You probably pay more than I do. I pay by direct debit, so you know. Yeah, I have to literally like pay, pay as you go. Yeah, exactly. So there's there's a, the idea that you would sort of use this as a as a as a, as a reason to nationalise. I don't see what that would necessarily what advantage that would give us. I really don't no. understand. Yeah. I mean, what the outrage should be about is that all of our political leaders uh, across all the parties have left us in a position when in 2022 we are dependent on, frankly, yeah. dodgy states yeah. for our energy. We should be energy independent. Yeah. It is a disgrace that we're not. Mm -hmm. But that's going to take but time. But I mean, it's, it's like a it's, disgrace, it's... the amount of profiteering that is going on and the fact that um, energy companies are putting their stakeholders and their shareholders higher priority to their customers. Well, no, that's Do they capitalism, know are absolutely going to suffer? Unfortunately, I believe in capitalism. So, to an extent. To be devil's advocate with Amy, I mean, the thing about the energy is it's an essential service. Yeah. yeah. And it is also a monopoly. Yeah. There is, you know, so, you, so you've got a... Yes, but many of the... And look, I'm not defending these energy companies in a lot of ways. It's not a competition. But, <laughs> but some of them were suffering losses yeah. just, just a few months ago. So it, it's a risky business. Mm. But at the end of the day, it's a shocking that we're in this position. Mm. But I think it's going to be really worrying if the result is that we just lurch to the left and the hard the profits, left. And I see that happening. They, they, they must be able to provide affordable energy. They just must. And if they can't, then that is when they need to go into temporary public control because they need to. I just no. worry that... That's, that's just communism. Yeah, and I just worry that, well, what will happen is you'll just see prices skyrocket. Mm -hmm. 
further on down the yeah, line. Of course. Never works. It never works. And then it'll be inevitable it never price works. controls and Look at the state the NHS is in. Yeah. It never works. But now, in the midst of all this bleak news, the world has seen a medical marvel like no other and from an unlikely source. If you believe the widely disputed news coming out of North Korea, it would appear it's the most medically advanced country in the world after managing to rid itself of COVID in a mere three months. <laughs> after declaring its first case in May this year and recording only 74 deaths, Korean leader Kim Jong-un has blown the whistle on the pandemic during a speech in the capital city of Pyongyang. On behalf of the party central committee and the government of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, I solemnly declare the victory in the maximum emergency anti-epidemic campaign for exterminating the novel coronavirus that had made inroads into our territory and protecting the lives and health of the people. But it wasn't all good news from the apparent COVID haven in North Korea. His feisty sister Kim Yo-jang, who's tipped to be a successor, by the way, let slip for the first time that hard mad Kim had COVID himself. And you've got to look at the, the reactions uh, from his henchmen to this news. Even though he was seriously ill with a high fever, he could not lie down for a moment, thinking about the people he had to take care of until the end in the face of the anti-epidemic war. Actually crying. Well, mm. that, that pretends to cry, Dominique, because if you actually speak to defectors in North Korea like I've done, if they're, they're terrified, if they don't cry hard yeah. enough, genuinely, a couple of them will be taken out the back and shot. And, and I'm not even joking. Welcome back. Last month, the NHS announced its controversial Tavistock Gender Centre was shutting down after a scathing review found its practices included recklessly prescribing puberty blockers and encouraging sex changes to confused under-18s were not safe for our kids. The Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust has been ordered to close by next spring, but news today reveals that's far from the end of the argument. Some 1,000 devastated families of children treated at the clinic have now joined forces to sue for medical negligence, alleging vulnerable children were misdiagnosed and placed on damaging medical pathways. Lawyers say the NHS has a damning legal case to answer. But while there has been success for campaigners in England, Scotland's own version of Tavistock remains open for business. My next guest was given testosterone injections and even a mastectomy at Glasgow Sandyford Clinic after a long history of depression, self-harm and suicidal thoughts. Sinead Watson, now 31, claims Sandyford never explored her mental health problems and instead focused on swiftly diagnosing her with gender dysphoria aged 24, despite never having a history of it prior to her teenage years. After having her breasts removed and changing her name to Sean, Sinead said she was still, quote, depressed as she'd ever been and spiralled into alcoholism and a complete mental breakdown. She now believes Sandyford's children's services should meet the same fate as the Tavistock Clinic and shut immediately, echoing calls from top psychiatrist David Bell, who first blew the whistle on the London-based centre. Now, Sinead has since detransitioned after her nightmare experience, but some changes, including the mistake to me her voice and body hair are irreversible and she bravely joins me now to discuss how she's turning her painful past into defiant activism in a bid to save others from the same horrors so Sinead so great to have you here your story is so heartbreaking and you're very concerned 
that this clinic in Scotland is presumably still putting others through the same thing. Yeah, um, thanks very much for having me on. It really does mean a lot to me that I can share what I'm about to share because there are so many people who don't want to hear this. The truth is that for a lot of these gender clinics, including the Sandyford, they go by the affirmation only approach. And that is what I went through. When I went to the Sandyford, as you mentioned, with a whole host of comorbid conditions, they didn't care about any of that. All they cared about was the gender issues. And I was an adult when I transitioned. What about the children that are doing this? What about these young children who are going to these clinics with a whole host of other issues? They have no idea what they're going to want as adults. And they are being affirmed like I was and put on experimental medication. And I think that it's appalling. I think that it's child abuse. And I will speak to people like you and anyone else to tell you exactly how these clinics operate, because I was there. And what's so shocking about your story, Sinead, is that you say they never really attempted to deal with the complicated psychological issues. And you obviously had lots of things that you'd gone through in the past that you were dealing with. Instead, it was this quick path, really, to medication and then the life-changing surgery and actually, you realised almost immediately, didn't you, that it had been a big mistake? Yeah, I mean, a lot of trans activists will say that when you claim that people are rushed into transition, you're lying. And the reason why they say that is because the waiting lists are so long. The waiting lists are so long because we've seen an increase of thousands of percent of young people, particularly young women, um, identifying as trans very suddenly. That's why the wait is so long. But the actual time between your first appointment and, for example, irreversible cross-sex hormones is very small. I didn't receive any therapy or counselling during my 13-month wait. What did happen was between the first time I was seen at the clinic and the time that I was sticking a needle filled with sustenance to 50 into my thigh, less than five months had passed. So we are being rushed into transition. And you say that really at your appointments, you got a bit of small talk, but the medical professionals never really actually wanted to understand where you were at mentally. Well, no, and this is how severe it got. They were aware that I had a very severe breakdown to the point where I had to be hospitalized on a psychiatric ward they discussed that with me for maybe all of four minutes. And the conversation went something like this. Oh, I see that you were held in a psychiatric ward. What was that about? And I said, oh, it's because I'm trans and I need to transition. And they said, OK, they noted that in their file and it never came up again. There was no exploration. And obviously you've spoken really powerfully, Sinead, and written really powerfully on your Twitter about how the physical changes are going to stick with you for life now. A lot of what you've been, even though you've detransitioned and you are living as a biological woman again, a, a, a lot of the physical treatments that you've went through are simply irreversible. Most of them are. That is the problem, you know? I mean, when you think of the irreversible changes, you probably think about the surgeries, but actually the most of the changes that you get on the cross-sex hormones themselves are irreversible and they happen quickly. You know, my voice 
very, very quickly deepened and I developed the Adam's apple within a matter of months on cross-sex hormones and that's never going to change. My voice will never revert. I'll never get back my head hair. I'll always grow a beard. I will continue to struggle with the bladder issues that testosterone gave me. I can't undo the mastectomy. I've essentially dramatically and irreversibly changed my entire body and my life because of a decision that I made while I was severely mentally ill because my clinic refused to do their job properly. So taking all of that into account, Sinead, do you think Sandyford needs to go the same way as the Tavistock Clinic and be shut down? The child services, yes. The adult services is a little bit differently because like, we do need to prioritise children more than anything else. And at the end of the day, an adult can consent to transition, granted that they've been given the appropriate you know, evaluation and diagnosis and had their comorbid conditions addressed. But when we're talking about children, transition should never be an option. There's a reason why we don't let children smoke cigarettes or drink alcohol or watch pornography or put on bets or get tattoos. And it's because they cannot consent to things like that. So why have we been experimenting on these children, affirming them and giving them things like puberty blockers, which it's just coming out now, might mm. permanently affect your brain maturation. W will you consider legal action, Sinead, in the same way the Tavistock victims are considering it? It's a little bit different for people like me because I transitioned as an adult. Of course, you had the likes of the, the very brave Kira Bell um, who sort of started that process at 16, I believe. That's a little bit different. It's more... I need to get access to my files from the Sandyford. They claim every single time that they're reached out to that they'd be happy to speak to me. I haven't heard a peep from them. So we will see about that as soon as I can get more information. Okay, well look, do keep us posted, Sinead. Thank you so much. That's Sinead Watson. We get both sides of the stories here on GB News. So a spokesman for NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde told us tonight all Sandyford patients undergo a full assessment by a multidisciplinary team of psychiatrists, sexual health doctors, psychology and occupational therapists to ensure patients fully understand the process, are aware of all implications, are enabled to make fully informed choices. We're sorry to hear Ms Watson feels that she didn't receive adequate support and would be happy to discuss her care with her directly. But as she just said, that hasn't happened yet. She hasn't been able to see her files. And the Scottish government said, we recognise the need to provide the best possible care for young people questioning their gender identity or experience gendering, gender dysphoria. We will closely consider the findings of the CAS review as part of our broader commitment to improve access to and delivery of NHS gender identity services. Let's return to tomorrow's news tonight on our media buzz. Lots of front pages in The Guardian uh, talking about the climate crisis, of course, uh, blaming our dry spell on it. Ministers are set to impose restrictions in England tomorrow to cut water use as utility firms introduce hydropipe bans. Water firms miss own target on cutting leaks, that's the independent. Only one out of 17 household companies hit the goal, that's as official drought. Uh, is now expected to be announced tomorrow. Daily Telegraph leads with Liz Trust saying there will be no windfall tax on energy companies, as we discussed earlier. The Foreign Secretary also said she plans to lift a ban 
on fracking. That was at tonight's leadership hustings. Clueless. That's the headline of the Daily Mirror as they take aim at Boris, Chancellor Nadeem Zahawi and so-called energy fat cats for failing to solve soaring bills at their meetings today. The Daily Express warns energy bills will hit £5,000 by January. Above that, drought to be declared as heat hits 37 degrees. My superstar panel back now, Daily Mail star columnist Sarah Vine, the political commentator Dominique Samuels and the author and broadcaster Amy Nicole. Now, usually, diver Tom Daly's woke whining can be easily ignored. But this week, BBC One gave him an entire hour of prime time to put forward a historically inaccurate proposition that homophobia in the Commonwealth is the fault of Alter Britain. Uh, watch the lefty have his light bulb moment while speaking to a social justice warrior academic in Jamaica. What we have is this very complicated history of sexual trauma that went on for like 300 years. And if the representation you have of queerness is plantation owners sexually assaulting men, you get the idea that it's a white people thing. It's a thing that white people do to black people to harm them. The end result of that is a homophobia we see today. Everything you've just told me, it's, it makes everything make complete sense, you know? It honestly makes me feel sick to be British. How pathetic. He didn't even challenge her, choosing to gobble up that anti-British rhetoric with no critical speaking. And then, speaking to Guardian, he actually doubled down, saying, I felt so dark about my relationship with being British. I came away from it with a really twisted sense of what it meant to be British. I felt very helpless to be British. This from the man who is now a far bigger star in Britain because of his sexuality, thanks to the tolerance of this country, which he now feels sick to be a citizen. Well, anyway, yesterday wrote a highly controversial Mail Online column, uh, branding Daly tragically woke after his ill-informed BBC anti-colonial propaganda piece. It's caused a real stir, uh, so much so that Tom and I have been trending on the cesspit that is Twitter. And predictably, the majority of left-wing warriors have purposefully chosen to miss the point. So let me stress it again. Obviously, the homophobia in certain Commonwealth countries is terrible, but to blame it on Britain is historically inaccurate. Do you know, 1967 was when the UK, or at least England and Wales, lifted uh, bans, legal bans on gay sex, for example. And as Cambridge professor Robert Toms writes in the Daily Mail today, countless societies throughout history have been racist, homophobic and sexist to varying degrees. So from the Caribbean to the Indian subcontinent, when the British came along and imposed laws banning homosexual acts, they were scarcely teaching those societies to be homophobic for the first time. So Sarah Vine, what infuriated me about this was that Daly just was looking for a way to blame Britain. And he just found, of course, it would have been a producer, a BBC producer, who was able to find one hard left academic in Jamaica who said, oh, yeah, by the way, it's because there are rapes on the plantation 300 years ago. And Daly just says, absolutely, you're completely right. And I feel sick to be British. I mean, the entire I mean, thesis I mean, of the whole Tom, show. Poor little Tom Daly. He's a diver. He's not a historian. He's not a <laughs> television presenter. I mean, you know, he's not a, I mean, he's, yeah, he's, he's a lovely boy and he does lots of incredible things and he's a brilliant, brilliant sportsman and I love his knitting. But he should really be presenting the Great British Knit-Off, not doing a sort of quasi-historical documentary. That's not what it was at all. It was discussing homophobia in the Commonwealth nations because of the Commonwealth Games. Mm. And he was saying how, as a Commonwealth athlete, he felt 
uncomfortable competing in the Commonwealth Games and how many um, citizens of the Commonwealth feel the same. So yes, he wanted to look into I, I it. And he did so well, very... Okay. Yeah, exactly. That's fine. Yeah, he, he was the, the perfect person to present it. Well, arguably. I'm not sure, but because it's fine for him to say that, but if you're going to go down this road... Of, and come to a conclusion. ..and make it very political, then you have to have a certain was, amount of intellectual well, robustness. I, I feel like we're watching entirely different Amy, documentaries. Amy, he here. came to a clear conclusion by the end of the documentary. He's that. doubled down in interviews in The Guardian and BBC Radio 4 to say this is the fault of Britain. And that simply does not that, stack up. And this is, by the way, funded by us. And that's point, what makes me so really angry. It's starting to sound like you're pro-colonialism because all he was saying was the colonial past of Britain makes him uncomfortable. And he looked at the specific... Well, no, 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 he didn't. I just, you just saw the quote. You said it made him feel it, sick to be British. You know, he said what made him sick to be British was what happened in Jamaica, a British colony, which arguably didn't exist before British rule. So he was saying what happened in Jamaica made him sick. So do you think it's excusable British, which I for that Jamaican woman that to someone... say, oh, homophobia, it's not the fault of the Jamaicans who are homophobic, it's down to uh, the Brits because of it's some plantation owners Jamaican. who may have raped folk on a plantation 300 years ago. Yeah, this is the problem. Yeah, it is, it is patronising to, to say that... The origins you have of no autonomy. Those are the origins of homophobia, though, and this is the problem. Homophobe okay. Homophobia and anti-gay attitudes have been rife throughout our society globally since yeah. before and the empire really even existed. Of Just read the Bible, religion. read yes, the Quran. Yes. I, I totally okay, agree these were present in these societies. And then who, when it introduced Iran, it to Saudi Arabia, <laughs> they weren't colonized, and they have very homophobic uh, culture. Most homophobic well, you're, in the this world. isn't about the empire. So this isn't they, about yeah. the empire. It's not about the Commonwealth. It's about their attitudes, and, and it's it, so patronizing to say that these people are so stupid, mm. so brainwashed oh by the God. empire the that they don't have enough agency for themselves to be able to well, draw conclusions about the laws that, that they want in their country with regards to homosexuality. It's astounding that you're saying this. No, no, but it's not the, astounding. The Just let Sarah come and let Sarah To say that modern Jamaicans are incapable of making a, a, a sort so of informed decision about whether or not they think homosexuality is a good thing is really... Patronising, and it's also and stupid. That's it's not just because well, yeah, she, she didn't a, a, say that, but she's commentators a, actually no, made she didn't the point say that, but that she's this is almost it. another form of woke colonialism. Because what Daly is now saying is that these countries have not made their own laws because of their own morals. They're making because laws because they've been the inflicted by the UK He actually makes a ago. very big point within the documentary to talk about the people advocating for LGBT rights within these nations. And he makes a point of saying exactly the opposite of what Sarah's just outlined. But those aren't the but origins of homophobia. Really, so to suggest the that it's the origi origins of homophobia who when, when the, who the who big bad introduced? white people came into Jamaica is stupid. But that is the origin of homophobia it's not the or Jamaica. Do you know what homophobia what, is? According to one hard-left academic, Amy, how, do you have no. any other evidence of that? I have evidence that the British no, went don't. to Jamaica, wrote the laws that proceed to... Those are, those are... Can I just finish, though? Those are laws that put into legal practice homophobia, but... Homophobia doesn't Exist. just not exist without law. It I'm obviously existed in Jamaica before those that. laws Tom were in Daly place. So, that. but to he say that a, that's an origin a, of homophobia is not, it's not film correct. About people that are being tortured and killed for who they are right now, today, that is happening. Yes, that's not but, because but, of that's but, but, but I, but I actually made the point, Sarah. There were lots of great things in this documentary, and 
it was absolutely horrifying for me, for obvious reasons, mm. to see the way that these gay athletes mm. treated in Nigeria mm. and Pakistan. But I'm sorry, I will not stand by and just allow the BBC, because this is licence fee mm. payer money, to allow anti-British celebrities mm. to spout historical well, nonsense. Well, I mean, I don't, think, I don't think... I think the thing about Tom Daly, as I'm sure he's not really anti-British... Well, he's said he's spout like, sick... He's, he's not anti-British. Anti I, I don't think he's anti-British. He represents I, the United States. I think he's just very impressionable. He's very young, and I think this obviously affected him very, very and that, deeply. And that is the but problem. It, but it's up to the BBC, really, mm. as the adults in the room, to make sure that yep. it doesn't... There was no critical analysis. There was no balance. There was no historical... Uh, you debate. mean there was no alternative view to the historical consensus of what happened? There, uh, I'm sorry, Amy. Consensus. It is not historical consensus that the reason Jamaicans one... in 2022 are homophobic is because of rapes on a plantation 300 years ago. And as Dominique says, it's actually patronising to the Jamaican people. and reducing it. He said that was one contributing factor to why homophobia... He said also the politics, the law, the religion, everything became a, a, a recipe for the homophobia that, that prevails today. And I think that really... What I hope is that everyone goes and watches the documentary now because I feel like no-one's actually watched it and everyone's got an opinion well, on it without yeah, Dan did. watching it. No, I know Dan did, but I hope the viewers go and watch I it. Did. And I and, and, and I'm sorry, I have a lot of right to talk about this. Mm. Uh, I, I'm from the Commonwealth, I'm gay, and it made me feel sick. And I actually completely disagree that, that Tom Daly does not hate Britain because what you are seeing now, much, much more, with these young and woke indoctrinated celebrities, is that the answer to every... He even well, looked it, at his Commonwealth Games medal and said, ugh, I feel well, it's, ashamed it's, of it's, this it's now. It's an easy way of... It's a virtue... It's an easy way to virtue signal, yeah. isn't it? And it's, an, it's, it's a way to sort of seem... Of course. Seem and he, he, he wasn't... What made me so sad is this documentary could have been great, mm. but what he needed to do by the end of it is actually look at the complexities about why these homophobic laws still exist. Mm. And by the way, Nigeria is a very different country to Jamaica Absolutely. and Pakistan is a very yeah. different but country to Nigeria. Arabia. And well. instead, to say, oh, it's just because of racist, horrible, colonial Britain, it simplified the problem and, unfortunately, it just appeases the woke mob who want to blame everything on colonialism. When you say, am I pro-colonialism, Amy? There are certain brilliant things of... Uh, British history and colonialism. There are also certain bad things about it. But I will not sign up to this narrative from folk like you to be ashamed because I think that... Uh, because it's I should say that all British colonialism was bad. I'm from New Zealand. There are huge benefits to New Zealand because of colonialism. But you say you're proud to be British whilst if denying half of Britain's history and wanting to erase it and deny it. What am I wanting to erase and deny? All what I just said is that not all... Everything to yeah, it's come not, from it's not as one-dimensional as it's been made out to be in this documentary. I mean, you know, the only person we, to be one-dimensional about it is Dan. I disagree. Well, how am I being one-dimensional? Because you were saying he said all of um, the Commonwealth is this one. It said he's not proud of all. He was talking about one example of Jamaica. He then explored different parts of the Commonwealth. And an interesting thing is the Commonwealth in its in its very existence is meant to have a shared value of equality. Surely this do, just do, demonstrates do you know the, 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 the biggest complete... thing that angered me about it is the fact that Tom Daly said he felt sick to be British when 
he could not he be himself in so he many other parts of this world, including, by the way, Amy, Eastern Europe, places very, places very, very close to home. And in fact, when this kid came out as gay, he thought he was going to be beaten up no, on the street, he was, so was going to lose his sponsorship. And actually, it made him one of the yeah. biggest stars of this country. And that is because of the tolerance yeah. in this country. Britain is a place where you can follow your dreams and achieve yeah. no matter what your Shortly sexuality. And to try and sort of say that we are some sort of homophobic well. country, spreading homophobia through uh, the Commonwealth because of our history, I just thought it was very wrong. Now, you might think I'm telling porcupines with this next story, but honestly, I'm not. The vegan extremists at Peter have demanded the London Mayor of Leicester, Sir Peter Soulsby, rename the city's iconic roundabout Pork Pie Island. And you'll never guess what the eco-nutters are proposing as a new name, Vegan Pie Roundabout. I guess we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, it's absolutely tasteless. Peter's senior campaign manager, Kate Warner, wrote in a letter to the mayor, this is not a pie-in-the-sky request. Eating a varied plant-based diet has been shown to prevent heart disease, diabetes, abdominal fat and cancer. Encouraging people to eat plant-based could also help lessen the burden on Leicester's already overstretched NHS. But just remember, as I revealed at the top of the show, you go on a plant-based diet, you break your hip. So it's not all good. Amy Nicole, Dominic Samuel, Sarah Vine, do stand by because coming up, why has Mark Drakeford been banned from one of the biggest attractions in Wales? Find out as we crown the final greatest Britain Union jackass of the week. Uh, but first, has New Zealand come to regret its zero COVID obsession? Dr Jay Bhattacharya, co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration, is uncancelled and talking Jacinda in mere seconds. First, though, quick preview of Monday's show. Coming up on Dan Wooten tonight, he exposed the scandal that helped bring down the PM. But now Chris Pincher, accuser and former Olympic rower Alex Story, wants Boris to stay in number 10. He'll join me live to reveal why. Plus, there's opinion galore from founder of the Free Speech Union, Toby Young, and Neil Oliver, as well as my superstar panel. The Daily Express columnist, Carol Malone, broadcaster, Sam Dowler, and political commentator and former Brexit Party MEP, Belinda DeLucy. That's Dan Wharton tonight, Monday to Thursday, from 9pm till 11pm on GB News. But it's time now for Uncancelled. And this is where the world's top experts speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. And would you look at that? The COVID-19 farce keeps unravelling at an astonishing pace, this time making New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern Look at even bigger embarrassment. As the rest of the world moves on, cases of the virus in New Zealand have exploded, with infections per capita now exceeding US levels. But how? COVID authoritarian Ardern, the Kiwi's dear leader, who must not be criticised, was talk of the town when the pandemic struck, thanks to a hardline take on tackling the virus. The stripping of civil liberties, lockdown after lockdown, and the theft of bodily autonomy were all a price worth paying to ensure not a single molecule of COVID-19 reached the beautiful shores of my birthplace. During her two-year toxic crusade, Jacinda took inspiration from George Orwell with chilling demands that Kiwis only paid attention to her Ministry of Truth. The most up-to-date information daily. You can trust us as a source of that information. Uh, you can also trust the Director General of Health and the Ministry of Health for that information. Otherwise, dismiss anything else. We will continue to be your single source of truth. We will provide information frequently. We will share everything we can, uh, everything you are, else you see, um, a grain of salt.
Not scary at all, is it? Uh, but while COVID cases spiral in her country, Ardern now has the lowest approval rating since 2017, with polling showing she will lose the next election. And I'm not surprised. Uh, when I travelled back to New Zealand for the first time in two and a half years in June, this is the scene that greeted me. I just want to say thank you so much to Jacinda Ardern, dear leader who must not be criticised, because here we are at Auckland International Airport, and it's buzzing people everywhere none of the shops are shut no 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 none of the bars are shut uh, there's hundreds and thousands of people and i just want to say thank you to cindy for reopening the country so beautifully not joined now by dr jay vantacharya professor at stanford school of medicine and co-author of the great barrington declaration and jay you write Ultimately, New Zealand's zero COVID strategy was immoral, incoherent, and a grand failure. Explain. So if you look at what happened, uh, New Zealand declared victory over the pandemic, over the virus over the first year. They had no COVID. They had repeated lockdowns over and over again. So they still had to worry about their kids going to school, their businesses staying open. Uh, but they had zero COVID. Um, they delayed vaccinating for a full year. They didn't really get started in, in earnest until like September, October 2021. Um, for a full year, th there was a, a delay in the key tactic that would get them out of the pandemic. And then now that they've opened up, the, essentially it's a let it rip strategy. There are now more cases per capita through the whole pandemic in New Zealand than there were in the United States. Actually, weirdly, today, the uh, UK and the US, uh, New Zealand have the same number of COVID cases per capita through the pandemic. Um, and the, the overall excess death rates, that is deaths over and above what you uh, would expect during the pandemic, have exploded this past year uh, in 2022. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's essentially a policy that imposed misery on the people of New Zealand, relied on a vaccine that could not have been developed in country. Uh, and uh, and and then even when it was available, they delayed rolling it out. It really was a big failure. Uh, with I'm mean, not even talked about the economic consequences as you have. Well, indeed, and the thing is, Jay, it just delayed the inevitable. We we know it would, and I think something that isn't looked into much either is just the emotional toll that such a draconian policy took. And of course, that's expected in a communist country like China. I mean, I find what's going on there a disgrace, but. This is New Zealand. It's meant to be a Western democracy. What happened? I mean, I, I heard stories of, of expats who couldn't go home to bury their, their parents or their father or yeah, their mother. Yeah, yeah. They, they were, yep. the, uh, it was human rights violations on a grand scale. I'll, I'll just give you one story that I find darkly amusing. Uh, during one of the lockdowns, Auckland basically prevented anyone from coming in and out uh, of, of the, the borders of Auckland. There was a business set up to go outside of Auckland, smuggle Kentucky fried chicken across the border <laughs> into Auckland, uh, which actually made me feel good about some of the people in New Zealand that, that they would try to yeah. resist these orders. These, these were violations of human rights for no purpose. It didn't actually end up serving an epidemiological purpose, protecting the, the people of New Zealand from, uh, from epidemiological harm. Yeah, anything for KFC, I, I would do that, I have to say, Dr. J. But no, absolutely, uh, I know of these cases, someone very close to me uh, locked up in a quarantine prison by Ardern, which, by the way, had human rights standards that the UN said was not even fit to hold a prisoner. 
uh, locked up in that hotel while their mother died down the road in hospital. Just sick. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, thank you so much for keeping on this. But it's time now to reveal today's greatest Britain and union jackass. My superstar panel return. Sarah Vine, who is your nominee for Greatest Britain tonight? I think Alistair Stewart oh, for hosting that debate. With our Liz very Truss. own. I love Alistair. He's brilliant. Uh, Mark Drakeford is my. Oh, I'm, I'm, I, do I have to? Do oh no, you've got to hold fire. Oh, you've God, got to hold sorry. fire, Dominique. Who's your Who's your Greatest Britain? Uh, so my Greatest Britain is the 1,000 parents of the children of the Tavistock Clinic that um, are predicted by lawyers yeah. to sue uh, the clinic for obviously not caring for their kids and pushing transgenderism on them. And Amy Nicole, your nominee. Uh, my nominee is the swimmer Michael Gunning, who's featured in the Tom Daly documentary, uh, who swims for Jamaica, where it's still illegal to be gay, uh, yet he's a gay man, and he regularly faces discrimination, yet he's continuing to live his life just as he should. Well, I'm going to go with Sarah Vine on this. Of course, my great colleague, Alistair Stewart, who did a fabulous job hosting the People's Forum yesterday. Sarah Vine, we know you're union jackass, but why is it Mark Drakeford? Uh, just because it's Mark Drakeford. I think you know, <laughs> just Mark Drakeford, really. Again, uh, he's, been, he's been banned. Uh, he's so anti-English that he's been banned from Wales's greatest tourist attraction, which I think is, you know, fitting, actually. Yes, indeed. Uh, Dominique Samuels, your nominee. Mine is... Tom Daly. Oh, we know one. For his ridiculous Britain hating comments um, about homosexuality and the Commonwealth. I just felt like it was historically inaccurate. And, and Amy Nicole, your nominee? Mine's Boris because where is he? Oh, he's back now. Where's Keir Starmer, Amy? Yeah, I'll have him Where's as well. Where's Keir Starmer you know right what? now? I'll have the summer recess because I think it's ridiculous and very old fashioned and I wish we got it, but we don't and they shouldn't have it either. <laughs> I mean, well, actually, who am I going to go with? Of course I'm going to go with Tom Daly, Dominique Samuels. I'm totally with you on that. Sarah Vine, Dominique Samuels, Amy Nicole, what a fabulous superstar panel to end the week. Thank you so much for your company all week. I'm, of course, back Monday night at 9pm. Headline is up next, though. Good night. Dan Wooden here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wooden tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News. Listener.